1: Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern.
0: And with me, Robert Pest. And how are you, Steph?
1: Yeah, I'm okay. Thanks. How are you? How are you coping with life? It's pretty, pretty grim, isn't it? Horrendous. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, look, like all of us, you know, watching events in Israel and Gaza, uh, it's pretty overwhelming. And I suspect in coming weeks we'll be talking about some of the ramifications of this as they relate to the economy and business and our prosperity. But today, I think we should probably just focus on other things. Um, just aware that for millions and millions of people, uh, business and the economy is not the front of centre for them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And as you say, we'll, I'm sure we'll will reflect on that over the next few podcasts. Um, so, shall we tell everyone what we're going to talk about today? So, um, big deal for Microsoft this week, wasn't there? Uh, in the gaming world, they've just signed a deal to buy... Activision Blizzard, they paid £56 billion for them. We'll tell you who they are if you don't know and and why this is important and why it's taken so long to actually uh, come through and what actually is going on in the gaming sector at the minute. Because did you know it's actually bigger than the film and TV industry in the UK put together?
0: I mean, it it is a really important industry, as you say. And one of the things that drives one nuts is the extent to which somehow people just downplay its importance.
1: Yeah, don't take it seriously enough. But we are today when we talk about it.
0: And then I think we're going to talk a bit about what Dame Sharon White, the chairman of John Lewis, has called, I think, an epidemic of shoplifting. You know, we're going to ask what the shoplifting obviously means for retailers, but also just examine, is there an epidemic? And if there is a real problem, what's what's causing it? So I think that's a pretty important subject for many. Yeah. Where are we going to finish?
1: We're heading to our feet after that to talk about Birkenstock sandals. (laughs) Who'd have thought, hey, when we started this podcast that we'd end up um, talking about (laughs) Birkenstocks. It's fascinating, though. I mean, this is a a company that's got a really long history, 250 years old, and uh, they've just listed on the stock markets, haven't they? So we'll talk about what's gone on there. But should we start with gaming then and and this deals?
0: So kicking off, as you say, tell us a bit about the significance of the acquisition of Activision Blizzard Mm. by Microsoft.
1: Yeah. So as you know, Microsoft is already um, got a big part to play in the gaming sector. Um, but this is their kind of biggest acquisition in it. And, and let me tell you, first of all, who who Activision Blizzard are, because um, there might be, I mean, there'll be lots of gamers out there who know exactly who they are. For those who don't, though, um, it, it came about um, from the merger of two successful gaming companies in the early 2000s. So Activision, it was started by four software programmers in the 1970s. Blizzard Entertainment started in the 90s by three mates at UCLA uh, who had an interest in gaming. They borrowed some money off their grannies, apparently, and their big breakout title was warcraft the first one orcs and humans and obviously that became a huge franchise so are you an orcs fan i'm not to be honest (laughs) but i mean there's lot. i know lots of people who are um i do like a bit of gaming but i'm more into the next company that they acquired which was king who owns candy crush so i'm more of a candy crush girl than i am uh the warcraft stuff
0: is that is that a guilty addiction
1: well no it's not an addiction I have to. Ta- I've had to take the app off my phone, so I just do it now so and again. It was again. an addiction. Well, my partner's totally addicted. She's always. Flipping playing Candy Crush. I remember though, she said to me once, or so, you know, you'll you'll know I'm bored in the relationship if you see me on my phone a lot playing Candy Crush. And we're there, so <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Uh, she she's she, we're still got a healthy relationship. I'm just going to add. But anyway, the, the, so their their big title, Activision Blizzard, now is the the kind of Candy Crush games and also Call of Duty. So Microsoft are obviously wanting to get their hands on all of this for for lots of, of different reasons, Robert.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing that I find really fascinating, I mean, I've never really been a sort of mega gamer. I'll admit that, God, I'm trying to remember the decades now. There was certainly decades ago I was um, addicted to Tetris. Do you remember that tiny little Nintendo? I, I do remember staying up till the early hours of the morning trying to get that rocket to fire, which is how you knew you'd completed the Tetris challenge. Um, (laughs)
1: I can't imagine you playing computer games.
0: You you obviously um, don't know enough about my obsessive nature, but there we go. Um, But but I haven't really ever got into these really complex um, narrative-based games, which are Mm. so important within the industry. I mean, the thing that I think is really, really interesting about... This deal—it's this whole issue of the metaverse. You know, this this became the sort of currency of the digital world just a few years ago. You know, playing games, for example, and then using new digital currencies to buy stuff in the course of these games. This was a whole new part of the economy uh, that was allegedly being created. I mean, as you remember, Facebook even changed its name to Meta. So excited were they with mm-hmm. these prospects.
1: Yeah, Microsoft essentially want to be king of cloud gaming and monetizing the metaverse. And, and cloud gaming is basically the Netflix uh, for games where people can subscribe and, and play these games online. And now... The, the, you know I, w- I was talking to, to someone in, in the industry about this the whole big thing with 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 these games like call of duty the success of them is the loyalty that people have and they will go in and play daily in this metaverse where you know they'll constantly have to come up with fresh content new stories but also new things that you can purchase as well these new outfits or whatever it is different tools you might need and that's what gamers, uh, you know, game companies now are, tr- are trying to create is more and more of these deep loyalty games where you can invest and spend money in because that is, that's where their business model is now. It's about making money from all this in what we'd call, you know, the in-app purchases. They call them the micro transactions. And if you look at some of the stats on this company that Microsoft have bought, they made nearly $6 billion from these micro transactions, which is three times more than the 1.6 billion that they made from selling the games themselves. So that's where that's the, that's the change in gaming now. It's not about creating a game to to sell quickly. It's about creating a game that people will become obsessed with and then spend all their real money virtually in the metaverse.
0: This willingness to spend real money on features within the game is absolutely. Extraordinary, isn't it? I think, but it's a, it's a, it's a very important economic yeah. phenomenon. I mean, I was actually sort of struck by super successful people in the sort of digital world are totally hooked on games. Do you remember I, talk, I mentioned to you, I think, a, a couple of episodes ago about how Elon Musk is completely obsessed with game mm. gaming and, you know, he, he was playing some kind of digital game uh, up until 4 or 5 in the morning the night he decided to, uh, you know, immediately after that he decided, okay, w- whatever happened in the game, this was the moment he was going to buy Twitter. I mean, it was that, that was astonishing. And then I'm currently reading this somewhat gripping account of – the life of Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, who's being accused of arguably the biggest fraud in history uh, mm-hmm. over the creation of his crypto exchange FTX. And there are stories about how he is incapable of having a conversation with anybody if he's not gaming at the same time. There's something about the structure of his brain, uh, the author seems to imply, that means he has to be Doing at least two things at once, one of them being one of these rather complicated narrative, probability-based games. Uh, absolutely yeah. fascinating.
1: Do you know the other thing that I found fascinating uh, that that's really interesting about the gaming industry because it's really huge, isn't it? In the UK, like where the the something like the second largest producer of games in the world, and it, and we're the sixth big biggest market in terms of selling games too. And we you know we've got the big the big studios here like Rockstar and Ubisoft and things, but also there's something like two thousand small and independent gaming studios and you know as i mentioned earlier it's bigger than the television and and film sector put together i
0: think the other thing which is quite interesting and important about it isn't it is that quite a lot of these businesses you know we talk about the need for leveling up but it is quite interesting that some of these studios are not simply in the rich london and southeast I i remember a while back i made a film in dundee and was very struck by how important the gaming development industry was in a city in other ways, um, have big social and economic problems. So it, it is interesting how spread it is all, all over the UK. I suppose my concern about it is we're brilliant at creating these small businesses. As soon as they get to a certain size, they tend to be acquired uh, by the giants of the world that are not British, they're on the whole, they're American like Microsoft.
1: Yes, but interesting on that. And, and just to add that, you know, my thing about getting Middlesbrough into every podcast, um, Middlesbrough is also really big for gaming too. So Teesside has got this, uh, Teesside University has a big hub there and there's actually a big gaming community in Middlesbrough, similar to Dundee, lots of other social uh different pressures but but good at gaming. But so, yeah, so I was questioning this point Um with someone I know in the industry about in terms of does it matter if these companies are owned by other countries, yeah. you know, a
0: lot of them. Or co- companies from other countries, yeah, yeah.
1: Yes, and, and, you know, something like 90% of the total investment in the UK games industry um, has come from non-UK companies, but... The way it works in terms of making these games is it's totally international anyway. So, particularly for the AAA games, which are the games that they'll spend years and years on, that are you know m- you know tens and tens of millions of pounds spent on them, and even the double A ones where it takes a little bit faster and it's more like the, the kind of twenty million, they will be made across the world. They won't just be made in one place. So, for example, Sweden and the UK are really good at kind of starting off the process of coming up with the idea for games and they've got great gaming studios but then you might do all the ai and the capture element of it in canada where they're really good at that and then you do the quality control in in india so each section has has got you know each country has got particular skills that all come together to make make each game which i found fascinating because i thought it must be you know one studio will work on it from from beginning to end
0: the bit that i still think is a problem for the uk is if The domicile, the headquarters of a company is in the UK. That's where ultimately the profits flow. And if the profits are not flowing to a UK domicile company, then the tax revenues are not going Mm. to the treasury. And although it's great that we've got all these gaming developers here and they're getting good salaries and having good lives, and that's all brilliant, and they're, of course, paying taxes on their salaries... You know, we are by not having the ultimate ownership in the UK, we are missing out on an important revenue and then tax stream to fund our public services. And, uh, you know, this is just going to be an issue we're going to be coming back to time and again, yeah. which is the problem for the UK in not having enough super growth companies headquartered here and what we do about it. So, yes, it's brilliant that we have such a thriving gaming industry. Personally, I think it would. You know, it would be better for the UK if we had a few more of these bigger companies, um, you know, say registered here and paying taxes and dividends here.
1: But I think the the big issue as well is the tax relief and and whether the creative industry like gaming is seen as tax kind. That's one of the big beefs that, uh, you know, I've been talking to them about in the industry is that they, they say that the tax relief they don't get is one of the big pressures. And that is a concern for how competitive we are in this country yeah. for gaming. And skills is another one, a big problem as well. They say, you know, there's a really direct route from uni into gaming, but there aren't many other routes. And so you often get a certain type of person who goes into the industry. And I know that the gaming sector has had its various problems with, you know, recruitment and diversity. Um, and, you know, the Someone I was talking to was saying their biggest competitor when they're recruiting someone um, in the country, in this country for gaming, is it'll be a company in San Francisco that'll snap them up, but let them work in the UK. So there's lots of people in the UK working for companies um, in other countries as well, and that's really hard for the British companies here. Is how can they give them the you know the, the best salary when they're competing with someone from San Fran who's offering them shed loads of money?
0: It's sort of two other things I thought about this, w- which were quite interesting. One was the extent to which the UK regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority, was the only regulator in the world to really put a spanner in the works and uh, initially blocked the deal, even though, you know, neither Activision or Microsoft um, are British companies. I mean, in the end, there was a sort of workaround um, with the, this deal that forced. Microsoft to make available to Ubisoft uh, various games, but quite significant that in a global industry, uh, despite the fact neither of these are British companies, the regulator was prepared to weigh in to that extent. Um, I'm in slightly two minds about whether this just shows that we've got a great independent Mm. regulator looking after the interests of consumers and, and promoting competition or whether uh, in this on this occasion it, it overstepped the mark. I haven't got a sort of settled position on this.
1: To add to that regulatory point, just so people understand, the big issue was whether people were still going to be able to play Call of Duty in particular on, um, on PlayStation, because obviously Microsoft has got Xbox. So the concern was they would make it exclusive to Xbox. Yeah. So this agreement that was made to allow Ubisoft which is another uh, big gaming company they are a content creator but also a cloud streaming platform so they've been given rights for every Activision Blizzard game that's out now and also any released in the next 15 years.
0: It's just quite interesting particularly after Brexit to see a UK regulator exercising its muscle in that way and I think we don't yet know what the impact of that will be on the sort of attitude of uh, big international companies investing in Britain. The sort of final aspect of this that I'm quite interested in is what it tells us about Microsoft itself. Um, It wasn't that long ago that people assumed that uh, companies like sort of Google and Facebook would, in a sense, put Microsoft out of business. And one of the things, you know, because obviously, Microsoft belongs to that much earlier generation of digital businesses. What is really striking to me is the extent to which Microsoft remains one of the absolute powerhouse businesses in the world. Um, And, you know, it's Obviously, quite apart from all that sort of software that people use uh, in their businesses, quite apart from from gaming, it's also at the forefront of artificial intelligence. It is really remarkable to see a business um, post its, you know, essentially the departure of its founder, Bill Gates, growing and thriving and increasing in size to the extent that Microsoft has. And it shows you that the life cycle of businesses is much longer than than many people might think, even in this digital world where we think everything happens much faster.
1: Mm. Yeah, definitely. I know it's it's fascinating. It'll be interesting to see what happens next on it. But should we move on now onto another topic a one that is uh, a topic that's a big headache for the retail sector?
0: And it's a subject which takes us from sort of digital billionaires and multi-trillion dollar companies to something that's much closer to home, uh, which is something that's very much, I think on everybody's mind because it's, you know, it's talked about a lot, which is the so-called epidemic of of shoplifting. The, The chair of John Lewis Sharon White, somebody I've known for years, she used to be very senior in the Treasury. She used to run Ofcom, and she, she's she's chair of John Lewis. She's actually said she's standing down, I think, in 2025. But she made a very interesting sort of intervention recently where not only did she talk about the epidemic of shoplifting, but she also connected it, and we may want to talk a bit about this, to the terrible malaise on the high street uh, in general. She's called for a, a royal commission to look at what can be done to revive the high street. First of all, what's your take on how serious this shoplifting problem is? Is she right to use the word epidemic, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think she really is. From the retailers that I've talked to, from the people working in the shops, this feels huge. And in terms of the statistics on this, it's something like now there are – 8 million incidents a year it's costing uh, retailers near enough a billion pounds in things that have been nicked plus they're spending uh, over 700 million a year now on crime prevention attacks on staff in particular is the big thing lots of retailers are talking about, they've seen that double in the last year and we've heard about uh, various big names talking about the impact on their results as well so the CEO, uh, CEO of Tesco said in the latest results that the number of incidents against shop workers had gone up 30%. Now, that is huge. John Lewis and Primark have talked about the impact on their results as well. Co-op, which seems to be the one that's really facing the brunt of it, they've said they're expecting to lose more than £70 million in shoplifting this year even though they've spent like 200 million on security measures as well so and then similarly the smallest shops like your convenience shops your local corner shop 90% of staff have experienced verbal abuse and you know I've talked to some I've got a friend who who uh, runs a, a pharmacy and they, they've just seen the, the number of people coming in and nicking stuff really shoot up, and, and they say the types of people have changed. It's a lot more out of desperation and things, but also there's a an undertone of perhaps this is organised crime gangs using the cost of living and the desperation of people to ramp up their you know crime on the, all of this as well.
0: So there is obviously an enormous amount to look at here, obviously particularly um, at the height of the cost of living crisis Uh, a few months ago, there was a view, and I don't think this was unfair, that a degree of the shoplifting was just to do with people who simply didn't have any money trying to get hold of the basics in life. And one of the things that, you know, I I mean, I certainly found slightly distressing, actually, was the way that initially, um, supermarkets were reacting by putting security Tags on things like washing powder
1: and baby formula and nappies, which was sad. Yeah, and,
0: and the real basics of life, where you're just—I mean, obviously, n- nobody condones stealing, but you know, th- there was a sense in which, certainly, uh, you know, a few months ago, one was just feeling that some of this theft was just to do with desperate, desperate people just trying to get hold of the de- the, the basics. Yeah, but it's plainly not all that. And no. the reason the reason I say that is because I, I looked at the stats and. Um, obviously there's been a massive surge in shoplifting since COVID because of course there couldn't be much shoplifting during COVID because the shops weren't open right and so there was a but if you then look at what happened in the 10 years before COVID there was a rising trend of shoplifting year after year in those 10 years and then after COVID shoplifting returned to those pre-COVID levels and has continued to grow so there is plainly A societal issue here. I mean, one of the things that is striking is the huge amount of evidence that gangs are now involved. Because as I understand it, under sentencing law, you're much less likely to get um, a a, a sort of serious custodial sentence if you commit um, shoplifting than if you do burglary. And therefore, there's been a big shift away from burglary or a shift away from burglary to much more systematic by gangs raiding of shops in 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 that way and as, as as you'll have heard lots of shopkeepers say the problem is the police won't and, you know they'll ring up and they'll complain the police don't even bother to turn up and investigate
1: yeah and, and i think there's like there's a threshold isn't there there's like 200 quid if it's le- if it's less than 200 quid it's often not uh, not investigated and, uh, and all of the retailers i've mentioned as well have all been reporting stuff To the police, but say more often they're not. They um, nobody comes out. Uh, to actually deal with it, and even though they're sending them the CCTV, like my friend who I was saying who has the pharmacy sends regularly sends the CCTV footage of people nicking the stuff, but then never actually hears back about what happens, and you know just to see, and they just have to take it as a loss. But you know, I, I mean, I worked in retail as a you know when I was a teenager, and there, there was always shoplifting. I worked in a you know well-known accessory shop, and quite often would chase shoplifters out of the shop down the street until one of them threatened me with a needle, and then I thought nah Ah, that's not worth it. You know, so it's always been around. And also, you know, I've grown up in communities where the stuff that was nicked was then sold in the local pub that night. You know, people have come in with a rail of stuff and, you know, sell it on the cheap. But this is very, very different now because- we
0: can I ask a question about that? I mean, so uh, as we know, living standards have been under pressure actually since the banking crisis. And so one of the questions in my mind is how much is this related to a a long-term squeeze in living standards? And how much of this is in a sense to do with, um, it's a slightly glib phrase, but a sort of collapse in sort of morality ethical standards. I mean when I was a kid my parents were just obsessive about you don't steal, you don't steal and i' mm. you know you do get a slight sense that attitudes have changed a bit when it comes to stealing or or, or, or what I mean or am I just showing my age and it's I'm, I'm you know this is just I don't know what do you think?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I don't need to say this, but lots of young people who don't, Nick, but the punishment's a lot more lenient. But I think in, in terms of what's going on now in retail, I think there's two there's two stories because there's lots of charities as well coming out and saying, yes, there's, there's there are people who are genuinely stealing for desperation, who are stealing baby formula nappies. I have seen it in one of my local shops. It's something me and my uh, team have talked we've, we've often talked about it on the show as well because that is a real problem but separate to that is a gang, it's the is gang these organised crime gangs who are literally like one of my friends is an area manager in, in a big for a big perfume brand and he says at the moment every single thing has to be tied down or screwed down and still they are coming in and they're snapping things, they're t- stealing testers, snapping them off the boards and things like that and they're stealing to order he said like there'll be one particular type of perfume that'll get stolen all of a sudden as if that's the one that you know that that's coming to order and also they're really blatant about it you know I've read stories of people coming in with like shopping trolleys into stores and just literally hoofing everything in and then the security not doing anything about it because why would the security guards who were probably not paid that much money put themselves at risk for the sake, you know, and, and uh, confront an organized crime gang. Plus, they don't have many powers in terms of what they can do.
0: So, to Terence has got to be an issue here, hasn't it? Don't you think? Because, I mean, yeah, it one is. of the things yeah. One of the things that I was quite struck by, there's a pilot that's been carried out by a few retailers um, using new artificial intelligence technology. Um, and what, what they do is they use the CCTV, the cameras within stores to scan faces, when the camera picks up the face of somebody who's known to be a shoplifter the security person just goes up to the person and says essentially words to the effect of we know who you are and we're watching you and that does appear then to deter the person from nicking right yeah now obviously some people will say there's a big privacy issue here i don't know what i don't know what i think about that if you're not actually reporting the person to the police you're just saying don't do it is that an invasion of somebody's privacy and their rights Mm. what do you think particularly you know obviously if, if from time to time the computer gets it wrong and identifies the wrong person that's probably embarrassing particularly if it happens in front of you know a member of your family or a friend but what do you think about that kind of initiative
1: I mean, I'm all for stuff like this because I mean, surely the the small number of times it might go wrong is worth it for what they might glean from all of this. Because as you say, I mean, it's called Project Pegasus. This isn't it? This
0: particular project is pre Pegasus. In fact, the one I'm talking about. Yeah. But yeah. But there's a new one, as as you say, called Pegasus.
1: Yeah. So this this the, the Pegasus one will, as you say, use facial recognition. And if you're not on the shoplifting database, then they delete the information. But if you are, then as you say, the the shop staff get like a silent alert and a picture of the person. And then I don't know if they always confront them, but they certainly follow them round the shop in the hope that that will make them feel uncomfortable. I don't have a problem with that from a privacy perspective because this is something that's costing retailers a fortune and it inevitably might mean that gets passed on to the consumer, which will make the problem even worse. I mean, there's some other things going on, which I think are quite good. Like John Lewis, you've mentioned them. They've started offering free coffees to police officers so that they have a reason to spend more time in the stores. So you know, they're doing that. Yeah, hilarious. Hilarious. <laughs> as, a, hopefully, oh as a
0: So way to get a policeman? <laughs> To come around yeah. and investigate, you know, theft, just to offer them a free coffee. I don't, honestly, I don't think that's the solution to the crime problem.
1: I know the, another thing that, I mean, everyone's just trying whatever they can at the moment. So like Home Bargains as well, obviously a big discount store is uh, got something over 500 stores around the country. They've got a, got a confidential hotline now as well, where members of the public can tip off home bargains if they have any information about a theft or crime and they'll get 500 quid if they, you know, if they manage to convict someone off the back of it. And, you know, you're getting staff wearing body-worn cameras now, undercover security and aisles of the co-op, dummy packaging for things. So it feels like the retailers are doing everything they can, but what they really need is the support from the judiciary. They need to have, you know, it needs to be tougher on people who nick, doesn't it?
0: I suppose, on the other hand, it is worth just pointing out that, as you'll have noticed, Steph, the prisons are full. They are full. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people who've committed very serious crimes are not being put in prison. I mean, this is part, I'm afraid, of a much wider problem about how we deal with lawbreakers. There's
1: another thing, which is potentially ASBOs for adults. So I think there's other ways of punishing people that isn't just send them to prison. There's and I don't know whether that works. I've got a good story about ASBOs, by the way. When I first started at the BBC, um, and I went to work in Radio 4s and Current Affairs, when I got there to the offices, which you know, the, the the ones in West London, White City, I got there and I was only young, I was like 19, 20, and I went into the offices and there was a big map of Middlesbrough on the wall, obviously my hometown. Uh, so I was like, oh, who's put that up on the wall? I was like, hey, this is exciting. Who's the smoggy? Which is what you call someone from Middlesbrough. So I went over to the team and I was like, oh, map of Middlesbrough on the wall. That's exciting. Is that, you know, smoggy put that up, you know, showing their pride from the area? And they went... Oh, that, oh no, that's because we're doing a program about Aspo's. And I was like, and what's the what's the red circle on the map? And they went, oh, that's the no-go zone for the crew. And I was like, my mum and dad live in the middle of that. Oh, my <laughs> you God. You can see them recoil at the thought that I might be from this rough area. But there we are. So that whenever I think of Aspo's now, I just think of when I first started at the BBC.
0: Well, so long as you're not wearing your electronic tag today, you can get <laughs> on and do some work, I guess.
1: I'm having a break from my crime-filled days. Uh, and talking of breaks, we should have one on the podcast. Let's have a break. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern.
0: And me, Robert Peston. And obviously, we're going to be talking, I think, about one of my absolutely all-time favorite subjects, uh, which
1: is is sandals. I know you're joking. (laughs) Are you a great sandal wearer? I do like a sandal, but I have, I don't have a great relationship with Birkenstock, the company we're about to talk about. I've always wanted to be able to wear a pair of Birkenstocks, but- Why can't you? Because this is, uh, I'm sorry if anyone's eating while they're listening to this. I've got like long toes. <laughs> I've got, as my partner describes them, finger toes, so they don't cope well with that design of the lipped edge. They catch money. Ni- oh, it's, this is gross. No one needs to know this. I just can't get on with Birkenstock, but lots of people can.
0: So we're both here going to talk about the mania that's been around this company recently. It is an amazingly interesting story. I mean, this is a business, as I understand it, was was actually created in the eighth, the late 18th century. But tell us a little bit about the, the history yes. of Birkenstock, which has recently floated on the New York Stock Exchange. The flotation has been actually a bit of a car crash. It's not gone well. So we're going to talk about the sort of rise and certainly at least temporary fall of Birkenstock. Tell us a little bit about why we should be interested. Tell us about, about the history of it.
1: I feel like I'm about to do a Rory Stewart and take you back hundreds of years to where it began. So Birkenstock, it's led to believe, started in the 18th century by the Birkenstock brothers who were hand-making shoes in their village in Germany. It was a tradition that continued in the family. Over a hundred years later, their great-great-grandson, Conrad Birkenstock, of the original johan birkenstock worked on developing a shoe that would help provide comfort for people so their big thing birkenstock has always been it's not about fashion and following a trend it's about comfort for the foot
0: isn't it supposed to be the shape of the foot if you put it in wet sand or something that's what i was told
1: Oh, that could be true. I know that it was, you know, the Birkenstocks were part of that whole shoe reform where shoes were based on the anatomy of a foot rather than just like something you'd slip on your foot. They actually worked on developing the last, which is what you use to make a shoe from. They developed that based on the anatomy of a foot and they basically developed like essentially an orthopedic Shoe with a raised arch, and it has that famous cork and latex base to it.
0: And it's also, I mean, one of the reasons it's become particularly fashionable recently, because I think all their materials are what we call sustainable materials. So, as you say, yeah. you know, one of the things that I was really struck by, slightly against <laughs> my instincts when I sort of immersed myself in this subject, what well, things I've discovered are obviously still a German company, one of those, what they call a Mittelstand, so really important family business for generations as you said all sustainable materials cork which i think they get from portugal maybe certainly the iberian peninsula i'm pretty sure all the leather comes from italy they're all made in germany so they're also an example of a business a manufacturing business that hasn't been outsourced to the far east and does use you know really quite expensive materials close to home you know we live in a world where everybody talks about global sourcing they never strayed from what you might call local sourcing and it's really served them well
1: yeah they're purists aren't they about it that that's the really interesting thing about them because they never really deviated from the style of the shoe you know that famous kind of sandal we see now the shape that was 1963 that first came out
0: well the interior is always the same as i understand it, and that's because they think it's good for your posture and comfort they've got a few different styles as i understand it
1: yeah they've got fur trimmed and different colors and different materials now
0: so one of the reasons i do know a bit about this is because my partner charlotte is a bit of a birkenstock fan and i you know i had a sort of bit of a nightmare Over the summer, I was in New York and felt like I was living my entire life in the Birkenstock shop in New York, which I have to say, it was absolutely packed. And so I know a bit about I think it's called the Arizona style, which I think is quite. Yeah, important. that's the
1: two-strap sandal, which came out in nineteen
0: seventy-three. Well, there we go. But it is interesting. So among the things that are interesting are one, the way that it started very much as a, like a sort of health hippie thing. You could only really buy them from health food shops. And then they didn't really have to use that, didn't apparently, as I understand it, have to pay people for endorsements in the way brands pay people for endorsements now. But just by chance, various celebrities. Got associated with them, so I saw that Kate Moss is almost—I think—Kate Moss's very first shoot.
1: Yeah, sixteen-year-old Kate Moss.
0: It, you know, was was I think wearing the Arizona, I think. And so various waves of celebrities have just worn them in shoots of various sorts, and have sort of added to this idea that you know it's not just about hippie-ish comfort; it's actually about fashion. And the other thing, though, that is really interesting to me, and I think this goes to the heart of trying to understand the business now, is. It was uh, very much a family controlled business. But something like 20 years ago, they brought in these two professional managers, one of whom is still absolutely sort of the power behind it, uh, not members of the family, called Oliver Reichert. And they brought in private equity money via a a private equity firm called Caterton. And they suddenly went from a sort of fairly steady as she goes, relatively, I mean, I have to say, relatively successful medium sized German business into something that's been growing incredibly fast over the last sort of 20 odd years
1: i just want to add a bit of detail to that because it's proper fascinating you know i'm obsessed with the people behind these businesses and the drama that goes on so Mm. for a long time they kind of had a single-minded one person at the top you know one of the birkenstock great-grandfathers would be running it but eventually one of them left it to three sons and these three sons could not a line on their vision for the business and it just went all over the shop you know it was a real problem they were all fighting with each other then one of their ex-wives set up a rival shoe company and tried to use the Birkenstock name they ended up in court with that and an agreement was made she could only use it if it was a tiny size compared to another name on there and there was all this whole drama and then one night apparently and I love this story one night Christian one of the brothers was meeting with his art dealer and this art dealer brought along with him this Oliver Reichart, as you mentioned and he was at the time a sports TV executive so for whatever reason he was with this art dealer they went out for a drink Christian started going on about all the problems he was having with his brothers how the business was you know basically going to shit and then this Oliver was like oh god I've worn Birkenstocks forever you know I think you could be a huge business and then he just started talking to Christian and saying right let's start take me to the beginning I don't actually think this is about your brothers I think this is about how your operations are split over all these different things and he started talking to him a total layman in terms of shoemaking or the retail sector he knew sports telly but didn't really know anything about shoes but because christian listened to him and started thinking oh man, this man knows what he sounds like. He's a bit of a kind of consultant. He took him on as a consultant in the business. And then he, you know, he just over the few years was giving him advice, you know, suggested that one of the brothers sold his shares to them, which he did. So Stefan opted out and sold the shares to the two brothers. And then as you say, private equity came in. And then eventually they made Oliver CEO because he'd just done such a good job. And then that is when things rapidly turned around. Like he increased sales five times from 120, 25 million in 2012 to 1.3 billion in 2022 And so th- that is such an incredible story, isn't it? About him being part of that.
0: It is an interesting story. And you know, there are plainly, as I say, some things they've done right. We've talked already about the fact that they do all their sourcing in Europe, the fact that they use largely sustainable materials, which, you know, again, I think with a certain kind of customer is very much helped. We should point out now that there was an enormous amount of excitement around the fact that they were floating on the New York Stock Exchange. But actually, it has not been a successful public offering. Last time I looked, the shares were 20% below the price at which new investors bought the stock. This is very much a sort of flotation IPO flop. But to be clear, they were valued you know, as a sort of growth, a mega growth stock. I mean, the value put on the business at the flotation price was, I think, something like $9 billion, which is sort of seven, eight times annual sales, right? Not profits, sales, right? That's only justified if you think that Birkenstock sales are going to go up and up and up and up forever. They're quite an expensive item. One of the things that I think is relevant is they are one of those companies that did brilliantly during the phase of us all being locked in our homes during COVID. They very much benefited from, you know, that trend. I don't know, did you spend a fortune on new tracksuits and leisure wear and slopping around At the leisure. house? Yeah, because they, you know, people wanted comfort during COVID and they did brilliantly during. COVID, one of the most interesting things. I saw a very interesting interview, believe it with I think sort of International Shoe Magazine or something that Oliver did Riker you? had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it shows you the depth of research I do. And uh, it was quite interesting. I mean, he did during COVID make this massive bet that people were going to still want these things instead of doing what most businesses would have probably done in those circumstances when they were really worried about being able to get materials and all that stuff. He just stocked up on the lever and cork and built these stocks of shoes and then actually found that, you know, he had trouble keeping up with demand. But my issue is, because we've seen this with other businesses, not all of sort of covid demand because it was a weird time has been sustained quite a lot of the businesses that did well in covid have seen sales subsequently fall they don't seem to have suffered that Uh, it's difficult for me because i've never been some it probably says something bad about me i you know i was always as a kid more of a mod than a hippie and therefore i find sandals quite a challenge um, in terms of you know my um yeah identity
1: Are you a socks and sandals guy, though, if you ever do go there with a sandal? That's what I need to know.
0: That would be a fate worse than death. No, I'm not a, you know, again, it's a terrible prejudice, but, you know, I was born with a prejudice. You you can't wear socks and sandals. I love flip-flops, but basically the extent of my sandal wearing is flip-flops. But I am, you know, it is... Interesting thinking about these sorts of businesses in the context of other brands around which there's a hype and then it's not sustained. I remember Donkeys years ago, the sports brand Reebok went through the roof. Do you remember that? And a a business called Mm, Pentland in the UK became incredibly valuable. And then the Reebok thing was not sustained. It's plain to me that in many respects, Birkenstock does all the right things in terms of focusing on quality. But I'll tell you another thing which slightly gives me pause for thought. Catterton, this private equity business that bought into them and has now sold some shares, has a partnership with LVMH.
1: Which is the luxury fashion house that owns like Louis Vuitton, Dior and champagne brand Moy and Shandon. One
0: of the things I'm interested in is, well, it's just something weird that happened as part of this IPO, this sale, right? So Catterton sells down, which to an extent means LVMH is selling down. And yet Bernard Arnault, who's the guy who sort of created LVMH and is very much the driving force behind it, uses his private funds to buy some shares in the IPO. And nobody knows more about brands than LVMH. You know, a couple of questions. Wouldn't they want to own the whole thing? That's one question in my mind. But also, why would you be both a seller and a buyer? I don't know. It's very intriguing. I instinctively feel nervous when a business has such a high stock market valuation I do worry that stock market, like, frankly, you know, consumers, as it were, get sucked into sort of trends and fads. I think that's one of the reasons why the shares have, have fallen.
1: That's what I think they're clever at, not being part of the trends and fads. For example, um, they were Supreme, who were obviously a brand that particularly young people will queue up for when there's going to be a Supreme drop of whatever product it is. They tried to do a deal with Birkenstock and out was like, No, that would be prostitution to have Supreme written on a Birkenstock, even though that would have taken them to, again, another audience, which is really interesting.
0: So maybe his degree of control of quality and the nature of the brand is enough to, over time, underpin this very high valuation that, that's been put on the company
1: one obviously other thing we haven't mentioned that's been a big part of this is they featured in the barbie movie which was obviously huge and to see barbie who'd gone from having arched you know being barbies always on their toes, and then when the barbie character margot robbie playing her her feet went flat because she was kind of becoming a dysfunctional barbie She was given a pair of Birkenstock and it was like, oh my God, your life's over because you've been given this Birkenstock. But by the end of it, you realise, actually, that's brilliant that that happened. And that probably helped things as well.
0: I see you're wearing Barbie pink.
1: Yes, I've got a Shania Twain t-shirt on, actually.
0: (laughs) Okay, so Shania Pink. But anyway, I'm slightly (laughs) assuming that, therefore, if Oliver Reichart is listening, he needs to produce... A special custom Steph shoe for your toes. He wouldn't.
1: That would be classed as prostitution to him. Nothing deviates from the purest cork, sandals. He's discriminating against people with long toes, that's terrible. I know it is, I know just take the lip off the edge. Anyway right, should we have a look at some questions? Thank you again to people who've been sending them into us, it's money at gmail.com just a reminder and of course there are our socials and it's the rest is money on most platforms but yeah thanks for those who've been in touch, we've got a, a real mix of stuff. Now obviously there's been a fair bit of data out about what's going on in the economy over the last couple of days and chat Charlie Livingston has a question, which I think will uh, allow us to talk about all of what's been going on. So it says, with the news that wage growth is still above inflation, is this good news for the cost of living crisis?
0: So we've had what you might call good and bad news about what's happening to wages and prices. On the one hand, we've actually experienced for the first time, well, in months months and months and months and months and months, a real increase in wages. That means that wages are rising about 1% faster than inflation. The problem is that the Bank of England will regard the fact that wage growth has not fallen in the last three months. It'll regard that as adding to inflationary pressures. And at the same time, we've seen inflation figures just this morning showing the headline rate of inflation not falling which is obviously something that will depress the Bank of England, and also services inflation actually rising a bit. So when you look at this in the round, what it means is that pressure on most people's living standards is easing a bit. The cost of living crisis is not as bad as it was, but it does also mean... That the Bank of England is certainly not going to cut interest rates anytime soon. And there's a greater risk that there'll be another quarter point rise in the interest rate the Bank of England controls, either at its next meeting or the one after that. So as I say, sort of good and bad news. If you've got a mortgage, or you're going to have to get a new mortgage deal anytime soon, this is not great news. But in general, it is you know better news that we've all got a bit more money in our pockets than we had only a few months ago.
1: Should we have a look at another question.
0: So another question that struck me was from Daisy Isabel. What are the pros and cons of investing my savings into apps such as Money Farm? She's asking.
1: Yeah, so Money Farm, like quite a lot of apps out there, is basically an investment platform. So you invest money in, and they will give you various stocks and shares, ICES options, or pensions, or whatever. There's loads of them out there. Nutmeg's another very popular one as well. So you essentially pay fees for them managing your investments, and then they do all the hard work. And I think the key to think about this in all of this, Daisy, it's like you know when I, when I'm not going to give you financial advice on this but it's just knowing that there is a risk when you put your money into stocks and shares and obviously the value can go down as well as up and have a look at the reviews if you're trying to work out which app to use have a look at the reviews for them and see what other people are saying sites like money Farm, what they'll do is they'll you know ask you do a questionnaire and work out how risky you are or risk averse you are and then manage your money based on that but there are a lot of options out there so just have a look at all the different reviews and obviously we're not going to tell you about one particular one because I don't want you to lose all your money but yeah they can be a really good way of an easy way to invest money into stocks and shares if you're a bit worried yourself about where to start with it all because they do all the hard work for you but they charge a fee for it
0: so we've got time for one more stuff
1: yes you mentioned at the start of the podcast about The horrendous situation in the Middle East and what's happening in in Israel and Palestine, people are asking us what the likely consequences are of this situation on the world economy, which I know it feels weird to talk about economics when there's such barbaric things happening there. But we've been asked the question, Robert. So do you want to give us your thoughts on it?
0: Well, I'm not going to go into detail because it's too early to make cast iron predictions. I'm going to give you a sort of general framework. And really, it's all about the extent to which a conflict like this is contained or how much it spreads. You know, at the moment, we've seen the oil price rise because obviously, we're talking about the Middle East as a big oil production area. Uh, You know, we've already mentioned the fact that petrol prices are going up and that's affecting people's living standards. But the bigger issue is essentially when a conflict spreads out of control, that then can have an impact on supply chains, the ability to source materials of all sorts from all over the world. Um, And that's when the consequences of a conflict like this feed through into things like the growth of the economy, what we have to pay for stuff. As I say, it is too early to assess the Consequence for economic growth and living standards from all of this. But all we can say, with I'm afraid, slightly grim confidence, is there's already been an impact. And you know, the, through the transmission mechanism of a rising oil price, and it almost certainly will be an event of economic consequence, and not yeah. not good economic consequences, sadly.
1: Yes, and there's lots of examples from the past, aren't there, where um, tensions in the region lead to huge price rises for oil, which can have a dramatic impact on things.
0: But it's much wider than that. If supply chains to other parts of the world get disrupted, which they could easily do in a conflict like this, then and we, we saw that during COVID, for example, and we've seen it during putin's invasion of ukraine then that's why these events have such significant impact
1: yeah right i think we've come to the end of the podcast thank you again for the questions send them to rest at gmail.com if you want to add any also feel free to leave us a review as well of the podcast a good one only obviously or let us know your <laughs> thoughts
0: <laughs> and subscribe the important point is subscribe
1: yeah Uh, Right. Thank you, everyone. And yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye bye.
0: Thanks again. Bye bye.